0: The old pilot's plain tales, legend. Many of my aviation heroes are complicated people of nuance and contradiction, but not this man. As I reflect on his life, so recently ended, I remind myself of his uncompromising, direct manner, but also of his enormous courage and skill that brought him to the world's attention. Charles Edward Yeager was a man of his time, a time when his nation came to the rescue of the world and with its industrial might, its technological supremacy, its unstoppable drive and determination would go on to achieve feats of wonder that over 50 years later we're still finding it hard to equal. Chuck Yeager was born in 1923, and he was a long way from being a man of privilege. Like him, his father was stubborn and opinionated, something Chuck put down to his Dutch and German blood. Albert Yeager passed on much more than just his uncompromising manner, but the resolve embodied in his name, Yeager originally spelt with a J, meaning hunter. The family first lived in Myra, on the Upper Mud River in West Virginia, where Chuck's father worked for the railroad, shoveling coal, before they moved to Hamlin when he became a gas driller. It was tough growing up during the Great Depression, but with a safe income, the family prospered in comparison to many. Their dad often took the Jaeger boys on hunting trips, where Chuck's exceptional eyesight, later measured by the Air Force at 20-10, and his steady hand made him a good shot. Albert also taught Chuck to be a mechanic, and at only eight, he was up in the gas fields helping to rig pumping engines at school. He excelled in anything that involved dexterity or mathematical aptitude, but his English and history tutors despaired. A great sportsman, he would also have been a damned good trombone player if only I practised, he said. But between girls' chores, homework, hunting and fishing, his time was stretched thin. In 1941, Chuck enlisted as a private in the U.S. Army Air Force and became a mechanic at George Air Force Base in California. His age and lack of education made it impossible for him to become a pilot. But less than three months later, the United States entered the war. Recruiting standards were lowered and his natural skills were soon recognized. Chuck Yeager was on his way to a cockpit. He'd been up for a ride with a maintenance officer and he threw up all over the back seat, staggering out as miserable as he'd ever been, but it didn't put him off. He was also lucky that his records had been delayed as his court-martial for shooting a grazing horse dead with a machine gun while supposedly on guard duty might have put pay to his ambition. His initial training complete, and at the top of his class, he soon found himself in the Bell P-39 Aero Cobra, whipping through the desert canyons at 300 miles an hour, so low that the boys were leaving prop marks on the dirt roads. Chuck didn't much like the Aero Cobra. It was underpowered, and he joined in singing a song all about it. Don't give me a P-39 with an engine that's mounted behind. It will tumble and roll and dig a big hole. Don't give me a P-39. There was a gruesome selection process going on as many of his colleagues killed themselves, auguring in or buying the farm as he described it, and the accident rate was so bad that his group commander lost his job. Jaeger didn't have much time for those who didn't make the grade, saying that he got angry at them for dying so young and senselessly and destroying expensive government property in the process. Having said that, Chuck took his fair share of risks. Befriending a local farmer, he tried to help him take down an old tree by topping it with the wing of his p 39 When he landed back, the maintenance officer wanted to know why his wingtip was smashed and full of bits of wood. I hit a bird, Jaeger lied. Well, that bird must have been in one hell of a nest, he replied, and promptly grounded him for a week. Posted to be a maintenance officer himself, Chuck found himself flying the P-47 Thunderbolt which he promptly used to beat up the main street of his hometown, Hamelin, at 500 miles an hour. He was accused of wrecking the place, sending one old lady to hospital, blowing down crops and terrifying horses, cows and pigs in a miscarrying. Visiting the place afterwards, he would meet the love of his life, Glenys Dickhouse the sharpest-looking dancer in the Elk Club Hall. His flying exploits were never-ending when the back end of his P-47 blew up, pushing fire into the cockpit. As the aircraft disintegrated around him, he jumped for it, but was knocked out when his parachute opened. A sheepherder found him and tossed him onto the back of his burrow. Yeager would wake up moaning and groaning in hospital with his back fractured. His back was still troubling him when he was finally sent to England to fly P-51 Mustangs out of RAF Lyston. He had named his aircraft Glamorous Glen and he was sending his paycheck back to his girlfriend but now he had more important things to cope with his survival. It was 1944 and Chuck was a 21-year-old fighter pilot on his eighth mission. He already had one kill to his name, but now he was on the receiving end of the 20-millimeter shells from a Focke-Wulf 190. As his world exploded around him, he ducked down, but he was on fire. There was a gaping hole in his wing, and he was spinning down towards the overcast clouds. Moments later, he was in his parachute dangling from a tree in southern France, luckily only a few inches from the ground, but dripping blood from his head and leg. He was now officially missing in action. Hiding in heavy undergrowth, listening to the shouts of the German soldiers searching for him, he treated his shrapnel wounds and studied his escape map. He stayed put overnight, and despite an intensive search, next morning he was still undiscovered. When a woodcutter passed nearby, he took a chance and spoke to him. In the hands of the underground, Jaeger started an adventure that would last over two months until he faced the final barrier, the Pyrenees Mountains. With him now was a B-24 navigator called Pat, and they struggled upwards together in the bitter cold until they were spotted by a German patrol who opened fire. Pat is shot in the leg, but they escape through the night, with Jaeger having to cut the remains of Pat's leg free before bandaging him up. Jaeger dragged the unconscious man over the mountains to safety, a remarkable feat that won him the Bronze Star for valour. Back with his squadron, Chuck followed posting to the States so that he could remain on active duty and goes on to become the first pilot in his group to become an ace in one day when on the 12th of October 1944 he downed five aircraft in a single mission. Two of his kills came in an almost comical fashion when he settled in behind an ME-109, but before he could open fire, the pilot broke left and ran straight into his wingman. Jaeger finished the war on eleven and a half kills, one of which was an ME-262 jet bomber, one of the very first to be downed. After the war, Chuck married his glamorous Clanness, and with his flying and maintenance experience, the Air Force gave him a job of testing repaired aircraft at Wright Field. He was under the command of the Flight Test Division, and was also getting time on the new jet fighter, the Shooting Star. This was followed by visits to Murak Army Airfield, which would eventually become Edwards Air Force Base, where Chuck's obvious talent was noticed. January 1946 saw Chuck with his friend Bob Hoover sitting together on the six-month test pilot's course at Wright Field. Passing the course put Chuck Yeager on the path to fame, as the Bell Aircraft Company was looking for someone to fly their Bell X-1 experimental rocket-powered aircraft. At the time there were many who thought that breaking the sound barrier was an impossibility. Wartime aircraft had come close, but the violence that they incurred as compressibility effects shook their machines around made it seem impossible. In England the famous test pilot Geoffrey de Havilland had already died in the attempt when his tailless swallow experimental aircraft broke up at Mach point 94. The Bell test pilot, Slick Goodlin, had taken the X 1 to Mach Point 8, but wanted $150,000 to attempt the flight beyond Mach 1. Bell's chief test pilot, Tex Johnson, flew the X 1 to Mach Point 75 to confirm the dangers and agreed that Goodlin should be paid, but the Air Corps had lost patience with the delays and were taking control. Within a few months of graduating from test pilot school, the head of the test flight division nominated Jaeger, the most junior test pilot on the base, to be the principal pilot of the X-1. Jack immediately picked his friend, Bob Hoover, to act as his backup pilot, and Jack Ridley as flight engineer. Looking over the ship, Jaeger saw a bright orange bullet with razor-thin wings. The only way in or out was through a small side door that threatened to cut anyone foolish enough to try to jump in half. Surrounding the hangar were labs with vats full of alcohol and others oozing smoking fog from liquid oxygen at minus 297 degrees Fahrenheit. To illustrate the point, someone dipped a frog into a tank and then dropped it on the floor where it shattered into pieces. Jaeger was considering taking this rocket ship through a very narrow region of flight never encountered before, through a supersonic shockwave. Now a shockwave is a very narrow region, perhaps one thousandth of an inch, 0.025 of a millimetre thick, in which the air is in a high state of energy. On transitioning a shockwave, flow is violently compressed, its velocity is decreased and temperature increased. When transonic and supersonic, conventional aerodynamics change and the alterations can be dangerous. The balance of an aircraft can alter dramatically as the centre of pressure moves aft. Controls can become ineffective and the stress on an airframe destructive. Jaeger's boss told him that nobody knew for sure what would happen at Mach 1 until someone got there. "'Some very good aviation people thought that the loads on the aircraft would go to infinity. "'You know what that means?' he asked. "'He knew.' "'Chuck practised a few glide drops from the belly of the B-29 mothership from 25,000 feet. "'He needed to dead-stick the aircraft onto the lake bed, even on a powered flight.' The fragile undercarriage couldn't cope with the weight of fuel, so any left was jettisoned before landing. It also made things considerably safer. Then things began in earnest as they loaded fuel, and on their first attempt Chuck took the X-1 to 45,000 feet, and then did a few aileron rolls before diving down a Murak and beating up the airfield at 300 feet, before zooming back up to 35,000 feet and hitting Mach 0.85, the fastest the X-1 had been. A Jaeger was slapped down hard and agreed to live by the rules from then on, perhaps. They were now in uncharted territory, and in small increments they built up the speed. At point eight-six, the shock buffeting started. Controls became sluggish and they encountered a wing drop as the shock waves moved back and forth on the wings. At point eight-eight, the ailerons were vibrating and it was hard to stay wings level. At point nine-four, there was unusual buffeting and pulling back on the stick had absolutely no effect. The elevators had ceased to function. They had reached a dead end, but then Jack Ridley suggested using the electric tailplane trim to control pitch. Nobody disagreed. They tested the system on the ground thoroughly and then flew again. Ridley was right. Above 0.94, the trim gave just enough pitch to keep the X1 controllable. They reached 0.96 but then the windshield, tiny windows of perspex, with a poor enough view at the best of times, frosted over. Chuck had to be talked down into a position to land by the chase plane, and using instruments alone, he lined up and safely landed on the lake bed. From then on, they coated the windscreen with Dreen shampoo, until the Air Force came up with something else that cost $18 a bottle and heading out to dinner, Jaeger fell off his horse, knocking himself out and breaking a couple of ribs. The pain was intense, and a local doctor taped him up, but could he fly? The next day Chuck took Jack aside, and they jerry-rigged a broom pole to let him lever the door shut. Most other things he could do with his right hand, which wasn't a problem. The next flight, the ninth, was to Mac Point Nine Seven. In his leather jacket, Jaeger painfully climbed into the X-1 cockpit and put on the makeshift helmet that he'd made himself from a wartime tank helmet. By now, the bright orange X-1 had glamorous Glenis painted on her nose. With difficulty, he levered the hatch shut and prepared himself. If this went well, the next flight would be the one. In the cockpit, he was semi prone, squeezed in with his knees higher than his shoulders. He took hold of the control yoke, shaped like an H, with the critical switches mounted on it. The countdown started, hey, and really? then with a pop, like a snapping cable, my, they dropped. Meter's The jolt, lifting him off his seat, shoulders straining against the straps. Into the bright sunlight, it was a struggle to see and to get the X-1 flying as it was heavy with fuel, and the drop was again too slow. The moment he got her under control, he fired all four rockets in quick succession and felt the force of the rockets pushing him in the back. Once up to speed, he turned two chambers off and so, levelled at 42,000 feet, things. doing Mach 0.92, 30% fuel left. Things. Flicking number three back on, the little machine accelerated and Jaeger noticed right, that the faster he went, oh. the smoother things became. Um. He was indicating Mach point nine six when the needle began to fluctuate. It reached Mach 0.965 and then went right off the scale. Chuck Yeager was thunderstruck. Hey, Ridley. Had it he called. It before I started. This mock meter's acting screwy. It just went off the scale on me. Son. Son came the reply. You're imagining things. Down don't in give me the a NACA tracking with an van, that's behind the guys interrupted to dig a big report hole, they just heard thunder. A sonic boom. The first to be heard Don't on give the plane, 39 with an engine that's mounted behind, it'll tumble and roll and dig a big hole. Don't the telemetry showed that the X1 had reached Mach 1.07. The sound barrier had just been smashed. Of course, things for Lieutenant Chuck Yeager didn't finish there. He was only 24 years old and had a lifetime of achievement ahead of him. But this single event changed his fortunes forever, even if he wasn't allowed to tell anyone since it was classified secret until 1948. He continued to break records in the X-1 and the X-1A, reaching Mach 2.44 at 80,000 feet during a flight when his aircraft became uncontrollable due to inertia cross-coupling and fell 51,000 feet before Jaeger could regain control. Primarily an Air Force fighter pilot, though, Chuck would fight in the Vietnam War and go on to command squadrons, wings, and as a brigadier general, he would command the 17th Air Force. He wore the Distinguished Service Medal, the Silver Star with Oak Leaf Cluster, the Legion of Merit with Cluster, the Distinguished Flying Cross with two clusters, the Bronze Star Medal for Valor, the Purple Heart, the Air Medal with two silver clusters, the Air Force Commendation Medal and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He would be inducted into halls of fame around the planet. Chuck Yeager died on the 7th of December at the age of 97. And although the world of aviation will mourn his passing, we'll also celebrate the man he was. Irreverent, cocky, full of confidence and ability. One of a rare breed of pilots that truly pushed the envelope to its absolute limit. My enormous thanks to voiceover artist Greg Willits for his assistance in the making of this tale. He's available at gregwillits.com. Now, if you enjoyed this story, it'd be great if you could mention it to your friends and perhaps leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.